Welcome to the Nature Sight Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. If you're like me, and when you're in this social distancing, self-isolation, spending a lot of time at home, you're confronted more with yourself than you normally are. You're not going out and doing things and kind of escaping yourself as, as you normally would in your normal routine. And so we can kind of get overwhelmed by our own selves, you know. There are a lot of, you know, monks and religious figures will isolate themselves and have vows of silence and things like that to sort of induce this state. It's a, it's a, it's a healthy thing to do. It's, it's introspective. It's a level of reality that's unveiled the, the constructs that we distract ourselves with when those are taken out of the equation, we're forced to really see a little, little better who we are and what we are. And also a chance to think about the world and our, ourselves in the world, our relationship with the world. And we live in an amazing world. We live in an amazing world of living organisms. And that's, that's one of the, the goals of the nature side podcast is to discuss the wonders of the living world and try to bring them into scientific functionality and to make them more uh, relatable to a general public. Science does a bad job of that. Science does not decipher scientific reasoning, scientific concepts well. Scientists work in circles and ecosystems of their own creation, more or less, usually very, very, very much reduced to certain fields. You know, there are not many psychologists that are communicating their results and their concepts and their perspectives of the world with ecologists. There are not many physicists that are talking about what they've learned and what they understand about the world with sociologists. And that's unfortunate. There's a saying in the scientific world because there are too many bricks in the brickyard, which basically means there's a lot of research, a lot of papers, those are the bricks. There's a lot of them in the brickyard, but there are very few things built out of the bricks. We, we don't construct them into things that are useful and translatable to the everyday public, which is a disservice to society because often science and scientific-minded people, they get a little bit ahead of themselves or they get ahead of society. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to explain the science of morality to someone whose job it is to collect the eggs out of a out of a chicken factory where the chickens are pinned up tight and you know it's there's hygiene problems and they're pumped full of antibiotics and sort of these these CAFOs these confined animal feeding operations that societally we've constructed to feed ourselves at this population scale at an economic advantage to whomever owns these factories. It's difficult to translate that there is a morality to living things to somebody who works or owns them or works in those conditions because for them to exist and in, in the way their life is constructed is that this is normal and that it's okay. And there's even a an aggressive posture taken against anyone who would suggest otherwise because it's their normal everyday life. They, they aren't, you know. So we, we get these disjuncts in society and that's, that's one of sort of the major disjuncts between progressive moral environmental imperatives that are scientifically demonstrable in our society against sociological, cultural tradition. We don't do it that way. We've never done it that way. I can't live that way. I can't pay my bills that way. And we have a really hard time. We're really bad at, at bridging that gap. And instead, each each extreme digs its heels in and we we don't get very far because we have two different perspectives anyway i don't know how i got on that tangent but just thinking out loud i guess but the universe itself 
It's full of amazing life and amazing things, but science needs to distill that better. And 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 I try to try to read from a lot of from a diversity of scientific fields to try to piece together just sort of a better idea for my own benefit what what it is to be alive what is existence what is life what is the universe i mean it's it's to the point that one can gain sort of an inkling of what that means and what it entails against an onslaught of things that tell you it means nothing and maybe it does mean nothing i'm totally open to that perspective in essence it's maybe it's better that if it doesn't but sitting looking outside my office window where the sun is shining and there's spring wildflowers and some uh, daffodils in the yard and that makes me feel good anyway um the amazingness of life it's not just human life there's a myriad of fascinating elements that we find in nature and by nature i mean reality not not that which is outside human existence because human existence is just part of that natural reality that we all live in and what i do is i what i've done over the over the last couple of years especially is sort of piece together this this general concept of understanding about the universe that i like running in the background of my brain and sort of being framework and foundational to the interactions i have with my day-to-day life and I thought I would share it. You can take it or leave it. It's going to be rambling. It's going to be somewhat technical. But I think it paints an interesting picture of how the universe works and sort of creates a, a moral framework and perspective upon which one can more easily translate, at least for me, translate the day-to-day realities that we're confronted with and the suffering and the the contradiction that our brains incur when they're when they're thrust against the reality of those situations and so this is going to be several points going down a list here building to a, a major or a main thesis and i'll try not to ramble too much i'll try to keep this quick um, but you know the, the the intent is to it's not easy. There's no one-liner to explain. You know, like the the first the first thing on the list here is the first law of thermodynamics. Well, that's a massive subject, right? And and I think you just have to use it within a context. So while I don't want to drone on for the next half hour and subject people to my dronings to to get much out of it, I think you really have to to take it slow and think about it. And that's a consequence of learning and knowledge and stretching your mind. You know, we, we tend to zone out. I do it too when I'm reading. I, I can really tell when I get to a complex paragraph or something and something I'm reading because my brain just starts wandering, gets lost, and I'm halfway down the page and I don't know what I read. Um, that's when I become conscious of, wow, this is something my brain has never encountered before and is resisting the the learning process so I go back and read it four or five times um, so this may be that situation and if you're not inclined to care when things fly over your head then that's fine you may not want to listen to the rest of this but if you're interested you might listen to it close enough and maybe listen to it a couple of times uh, it's up to you um, this isn't earth-shattering information but it is complicated so anyway like I said, the first the first point is the first law of thermodynamics, which is energy cannot be created or destroyed. It just transfers from one form to another. Again, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It just transfers from one form or another. This is foundational to everything we know about science. This is a law of thermodynamics, right? This is this is this is undeniable. We've never found an exception, right? This is basic to physics. And it basically says that we live in a world of physical reality. There are no miracles. Nothing is real but that which is the, but that which comes from physically demonstrable energy sources. So 
water can only become wine through a long, intricate, thermodynamically demonstrable process of water being pulled from the ground into a grape plant, pushed into the fruits, sugar stored in vacuoles of the cells of grapefruits, not grapefruits, but grape space fruits. And that grape is plucked, juiced, yeast is added to the, to the, to the juice. It sets for a while. The yeast converts the sugars to alcohol, and then you have wine. And in reality, the water is still there. You could extract the water out of the wine, and you'd have water again. But there's a process to which that happens. It doesn't happen overnight. Another simple example is when a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, the rabbit existed before. The, rab the magician didn't make a rabbit exist that rabbit already existed. When a magician hides a coin, the coin does not disappear from existence. It's just hidden away somewhere. And so making that distinction is really the first step in science is, is realizing, okay, some things appear as though they're miraculous, but that doesn't mean that they are miracles. There's, a, there's an explanation. We just have to find out what the explanation is. You gotta find the tricks. The the, the tricks of the magician are hidden up his sleeve somewhere. Second point is the second law of thermodynamics. When energy transfers from one form to another, some of the energy is lost without exception. I'll read that again. When energy transfers from one form to another, some of it is lost without exception. And that, that loss results in a decrease in order in the system. So if you have a sugar molecule and your body metabolizes it for energy it breaks that sugar molecule into smaller pieces it gives you energy to do work and then some of that energy is lost in heat but overall that molecule is now less ordered when the work is done when the heat dissipates you're left with molecules that are now more disorganized they've lost order it was a large molecule with lots of potential at the end it is a shattered molecule with less potential and then something happened along the way which was the the release of energy which can't be gotten back you could put energy back into the system to remake sugar molecules but that energy has to come from somewhere so so energy transfer is wasteful to varying degrees of waste and <laughs> the degrees of waste determined by how fast reactions happen and so from this point on, I'm going to put things in the context of, of ecosystems and life forms within ecosystems as a way to understand the framework here. So when energy is transferred in living systems, they tend to be slow processes. There's a, there's a, there's a speed component to the release of energy that is important. You can, you can release tons of energy really quick but that becomes really hot and living things don't tolerate extreme heat. Proteins denature, liquids turn to gases, not a good scene. But in nature, the, the theme, the underlying theme in nature is the slow methodical building and slow methodical disassembling of systems, whether those systems are molecules or organisms or ecosystems. So, Picture an ecosystem and picture each, each life form in that ecosystem is an intermediate step in energy. All energy that enters ecological systems starts from the sun. So the, the sun casts light out into space. The earth happens to be in, a, in the trajectory of the sun's rays. Photosynthetic organisms capture that light energy, convert it into chemical energy, and then all life forms in that system use that energy. That's the only way energy enters the system. Again, it can't be created or destroyed. Anytime it's transferred, it loses. It's a usable resource. Just like a, you fill your car up with gas, you can drive it around for a while, but it's going to run out of gas. And then you need more. The sun is where we get more. And plants are, the, are sort of the, 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 the refiners, the refiners of that energy within our systems. But more to the point, 
each life form in an ecosystem is an intermediate step in the use of that energy. The more intermediate steps, the less wasteful and the slower energy moved in a system. And I'm going to give you a quick uh, analogy here. Imagine if you wanted to go from the second floor to the first floor and there was just a big hole in the ground or a hole in the floor, on the second floor. The fastest way to get to the first floor is to just drop through the hole, right? But your body is going to get damaged from the fall. So that's that's too fast. So we build stair steps to slowly move ourselves down the stairs at a way that our physical bodies are not damaged in the process. This is this is think of that as an eco in, in ecological terms that within ecological systems the more ancient, the more complex, the more functional, the more energy efficient an ecological system is, the more s intermediate steps it has in the process of energy. Those intermediate steps in those ecosystems are life forms. They're plants, animals, fungi, bacteria. So again, the, the more of those things that there are, the more efficient energy moves to the systems. And this is why old growth forests and old growth woodlands, old growth grasslands, why they have the term old in them. It's because they're ancient. They're slow. They've evolved. The energy systems that they've established have been evolved as a community of organisms. Niches are filled. Think of a niche. A niche being a role to play in the use of that energy in a system a niche is basically unused energy so it's one of the problems with uh, invasive species ecologies invasive species often come into a system and fill a niche that wasn't really filled before and of course they become problematic because they spill over into other niches and start disrupting systems in a very pertinent way in, in a way such that they usurp the way energy would have been normally cascaded through that system and they sever anything in that energy system below them right so if you if there's an invasive an invasive tree species in a forest say it's an oak hickory forest and this invasive starts replacing oak hickory forest well everything in that system that was dependent on the energy that was captured from the sun by the oak hickory system is now left without an energy system. It's it's cut off because the invasive species is going to use that energy and and express it in different ways. It's going to have different compounds. It's going to have different seasonalities. It's not going to be the same system. So the system will instantly be simplified by that process. Old growth systems, ancient forests, woodlands, ancient grasslands. These are systems that are driven by long, slow, large climatological events. The the prairies of the central of Central North America exist because they are a climatological phenomenon and that phenomenon has moved and sort of swayed much like an ocean current would over time across a landscape. The speed at which that moves determines the degree to which life can adjust to it, just like you falling through a hole is too fast. So the, the longer these conditions are stable, the more niches are filled, the more efficiently energy is used in these systems. Hopefully that makes sense. It's, it's a, that is paramount to understanding ecological systems. And this is, this is happening even at a cellular, cellular level. Um, if you think back to Bio 101, there's the Krebs cycle. When we metabolize sugars, the Krebs cycle, if you remember learning it, is just crazy detailed with intermediate steps. You don't, your body doesn't just burn. It doesn't just break down uh, glucose sugars instantly. It would, your body would burn up. It slowly breaks them apart with enzymes and and electron receivers and there's this very slow very complex very methodical system with a lot of intermediate steps to slowly reduce that sugar so you don't produce too much energy too quickly you want to use it efficiently you, you break it down over time so 
another example of this is if you jump out of an airplane, you're going to fall and you're going to splat, right? If you have a parachute, jump out of an airplane, parachute opens up, and it slows your fall by dispersing your energy, and it slows the fall. So again, slowing these falls. Healthy, stable, complex ecological systems have parachutes. Um, it's what makes them special. If you go in and clear cut an old growth forest, it's going to dramatically alter the time scale at which things happen. Interestingly, try not to get too tangenty, but when you do clear something like an old growth forest or you plow an old growth prairie, there are species who lie dormant as seeds. Their seeds last decades lying in wait for something like that to happen, something very fast, something very temporary like that to happen, and they germinate. These are the weedy things. These are the scab, become scab plants. They, they germinate. They flourish. There's, they don't need ecological connectivity. They're mostly annuals. They don't have mycorrhizal associations. They're not building wood that's going to grow. They're flash in the pan, quick to the scene, first responders, scab plants, and then they, within a few years, they're gone again. Like I've seen wildfires here in, here in the Midwest rip through a forest in June, fireweed explodes. Our fireweed is Erectites hyracifolia, not the, uh, not the epilobium of more northern forests. But Erectites, by the billions, just, you know, there wasn't any there before, but now there's a dense wall of Erectites, produces copious amounts of seeds. You come back there the next year, the very next year, no Erectites, no fireweed, but the seed bank, is, is chock full and eventually something like that's going to happen again it'll take hundreds of years decades if not hundreds of years and in most places it won't even happen at all the seeds of those things also disperse a really long distance a lot of them have plumes like dandelion seeds and they're they're traveling they're they're erupting out of a disturbed environment and in order to exist in order to attune yourself to disturbance and quick energy systems you have to disperse somewhere where it might happen again and you have to make a lot of it you know you're, you're playing the odds right so anyway healthy stable com complex systems are slow and disturbed simple systems are fast and so back to Back, back to our first and second laws of thermodynamics. So when we put them together, what, basically what we, what we see is that the energy of the universe is both finite and it's decaying into weaker forms, into to less ordered forms over time. And so the, the finiteness and the decayingness of, of all the energy that's in this universe, it all originated with the Big Bang. So there's the Big Bang event which occurred 13.7 billion years ago that energy that just bam out of nowhere as far as we can tell a lot of weird things going on with the big bang thing but all of a sudden there's just all the energy that, that is the universe now came into existence and was hot and explosive and huge right and as that energy began to cool you know, it's it's still expanding right that explosion still taking place the, the universe is still expanding. It's such a massive explosion, the Big Bang, that it's still going. The universe is still expanding, right? But here, in our part of the universe where we are, it's beyond the front lines of the explosion, and things are cooling and coalescing, and things as tiny as electrons and quarks could not come together. There's too much excitement, too much energy. But as they've cooled, those elements are coming together, and then more and more came together and things developed mass and then planets were formed yada 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 energy began to slow and to cool we're serving that process now that's the decaying slowing cooling of the big bang process but it's important to make the distinction i think that the energy that is in the universe now it is the energy of the big bang the universe is the result of the big bang and the energy that it's going through 
our bodies you know every beat of your heart the warmth generated from your body that's energy that came from the big bang and it's just been transferred from one form to another for the past 13.7 billion years every spin of every planet around the sun and every spin of every electron around an atom fueled by energy release from the big bang so as things cool you know planets form all the things happen won't go into the crazy details here nine billion years after the big bang event the earth formed and cooled enough for energy to assemble into life forms into living things and and then i think it's kind of i think it's interesting to note that life didn't emerge until the earth and the conditions on earth were suitable for life to emerge if it even emerged there's debate as to whether life emerged somewhere else and found its way to earth or whether it evolved here um, out of a primordial soup um, the jury's still out <laughs> um but it couldn't have happened sooner the earth was too hot so, you know the earth was a was a molten ball for a long period of time and it had to cool enough for a crust to form on the outside of that ball then it had to form had to cool enough for water vapor to condense and form oceans we need water for life um and the earth's core is still cooling it's going to take hundreds of millions of years for it to to cool substantially enough for life to not exist but eventually the 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 earth is not going to support life it's a matter of time because it's a matter of physics because first and second laws of thermodynamics anyway those things those things happen so slowly that they're really only i mean they're not affecting our day-to-day life but it's interesting to note that it is a window of time that life is possible life as we know it on on earth it reminds me of a a quote that i just like to interject whenever i can because i think it's beautiful Uh, it's a it's a dalai lama quote um and it is that the roots of all goodness lie in the soil of appreciation for goodness say it again because it's kind of complicated the roots of all goodness lie in the soil of appreciation for goodness that's kind of how life was you had to have the conditions for life to exist you could say the roots of all life lie in the soil of the ability for life somewhat circular and paradoxical but useful useful nonetheless so life originated on earth roughly four to three and a half billion years ago uh, the first life forms were single-celled chemotrophs they fed on hot thermal vents from the oceans much as they do today a whole different sort of system very fascinating system very complex systems around these these thermal vents these chemical rich thermal vents that they're deep in the dark oceans and they've they've evolved life in the absence of sunlight and very complex ecological systems it's it's sort of a it's a great example of life just does this niches are just filled energy is just evolved into in ecological systems soon thereafter photosynthetic life evolved with the ability to convert light energy from the sun which originated from the big bang into chemical energy and then that energy ripples through cascades through all living systems so the chemical energy produced by photosynthetic life forms mostly phytoplankton and then land plants used by those plants but also it's used by herbivores and omnivores to run their metabolisms build structures store energy but all that energy again is coming from the sun and from photosynthetic life forms to to make energy from sunlight so a carnivore that eats the herbivore is using whatever was stored in the herbivore's body that it got from the plants that it got from the sun none of this energy is created or destroyed and any of these stuff these are these are literal energy cascades and then the the dead bodies of of all the above are consumed by detritivores which recycle nutrients and essential elements back into the system usually with uptake from plants and you get into these these uh 
nutrient cyclings within ecosystems that are fascinating as well. But all of it derived from the Big Bang, captured from photosynthesis to do biological work. And so the general path is sun to plants to herbivores, carnivores slash omnivores to detritivores, and then nutrient recycling. One of the biggest wasteful units, like with most thermodynamic systems, is heat. Heat is often one of the, the most simple form of energy that's difficult to use. It's the most inefficient form to use for energy. Um, unless you have massive amounts of heat you can do things with. But in the end, the heat that's given off through all those processes, it's fun to think of it as the heat that would have been derived from those photons if they had not been captured. The heat of the sun is coming out of those things. Similarly, the heat and light generated by burning wood is the heat and light plants captured from the sun, which is amazing. So a useful way to picture this dynamic is, is the universal energy as being a river. Chloroplasts and organelles inside photosynthetic life forms are capturing solar energy and they have cellular membranes and they're capturing the energy within these membranes, within like the thylakoid membrane of, of a chloroplast. Picture a satellite dish lined with little green dots. Those are chlorophyll molecules. And at the center, the bottom, like a funnel, there's an acceptor molecule. And light hits those and the chlorophyll molecules shimmy and shake and they, they bounce electrons down into that funnel to the electron accepting complex at the bottom. And that molecule uses it to snap water into, into its component parts. It breaks water into oxygen and hydrogen. The oxygen permeates through the, through the membrane is gone, so it builds within this membrane an abundance of hydrogen, which is essentially building a dam. You're building something against a concentration gradient, against the membrane, that you can do work. It's the same thing as damming up a river. You're building a concentration of water. When you release it through a controlled process, you can use that water to do work. Same thing's happening at cellular, pro every cellular process and every living organism is essentially doing that. It's a series of creating dams and building up concentration gradients of energy or sugars or hormones or what have you. That's, that's basically how life works is by creating concentration gradients and then controlling how they're used. Again, in reality, it's taking energy and controlling how it's used, directing it towards a goal. One of the products of this, this process is to build and to store chemical energy, like chemical batteries, like starch in a, in a potato is energy in a storage form that once you consume it, you can use the energy that is stored in that, much like a battery living form. And, and each time something releases that energy, the energy flows again, like another river and your body whatever the consumer is in the, in the system is using that energy in its specific way throughout the system. Some of that energy in this process is used in the transcription and the replication of DNA and, and other heritable non-genetic processes that would fall into the category of epigenetics. Over time, those heritable processes yield predictive power over the external environment. Basically, that the energy and inheritable traits it's storing information it's running scenarios against reality some of those scenarios work the ones that work move on to the next step of life the ones that don't don't there's a there's a very it's called variation selection and specifically when you're talking about life forms you're talking about natural selection but variation selection works all the time you do it all the time in your life when you decide oh I'm going to go to the gym and you go to your closet to pick out the shoes you want to wear. You don't grab the high heels, right? You, you say, oh, hey, those are tennis shoes or basketball shoes or whatever. That's a variation selection. You're, you're selecting out of some variables for a task at hand. That only happens because you know what the series of events you've, you're predicting. Okay, I'm going to get in the car and drive to the gym and play basketball. Therefore, I'm going to take these shoes. Well, if you took those shoes and then you went, uh, you put on basketball shoes 
and you wound up going ice skating, you'd have the wrong shoes. So you knew beforehand what was going to happen. That's how DNA works. DNA and, and other non-genetic but heritable processes, they are making predictions about what the future is going to hold based on previous information. It's really fascinating. I, I think we, I think science fails to explain that genetics is stored knowledge. It's stored information. It's, it's your genetics and the genetics in a bacterium and the genetics in a tree outside your door, the genetics of the mites living in your eyebrows. Those are all based on trial and error over millions of years of selection pressures of what is the best shoe for the job and that shoe moves on and then also stores alternatives right there are parts of genes that are not used unless this situation happens and if this situation happens those genes are used they're stored for long-term purposes it's storage information in essence if you needed a brain analogy for for ecosystems the brain of an ecosystem is the DNA of the organisms in that ecosystem. They're storing information, they're learning information, they're applying knowledge of information based on past experience. They're controlling the way organisms respond to the environment, again, based on knowledge. Much as your brain stores information and gives you scenarios and tells your body how to proceed and how to respond to the external environment. It's, a, it's an apt analogy that genes are sort of the neural highway of living ecosystems. I can't explain enough the intricacies, the details to which the, these phenomena are taking place in ecological systems. Like the, the scale of which genetic information and knowledge and the energy transfers are happening are just amazingly intricate. Here's another no-brainer that we often don't even think about is that whole process, the whole natural selection, the evolution of organisms, the neural function of DNA within a ecosystem. Again, powered by the sun, this is all Big Bang, all energy cascades. This is just life, all based on energy. In reality, evolution is a solar-powered process. Everything that is alive is a solar-powered process, which you know, we never think of it that way, but it's it's the only way it can be. And once you realize it, it starts you start thinking, oh wow, this is this all ties together very nicely. And so here's where things get a little more complicated, kind of. Um, basically, that this complexity, this adaptability, the stability that we're talking about in these ecosystems, we've got complexity of things using energy systems. You've got adaptability by heritable traits within life forms. And there's stability. The stability of systems is crucial. In order to have predictive capacity, in order to predict what the future is going to be, the future has to be stable enough for those events to occur, right? You know, that, that's why many of our more sensitive species, let's just randomly take a panda, for example. Pandas have a very limited diet. They're, they're very they're very niche specific. They eat bamboo and live in a certain type of forest. Their bodies only know how to manufacture bamboo or primarily run their metabolism based on how bamboo is. If you eliminate the bamboo, the panda bear doesn't have a way to to persist because it's always assumed that the bamboo was going to be there and as soon as it's not the panda's not going to be there right um regal fritillary butterflies only eat violets if you lose the violets you're going to lose the regal fritillaries because that's the only way that the, the a regal fritillaries entire life is dependent upon next year there's going to be violets again and the year after that, and the year after that, because there always were, to the you know, to the point in evolutionary history where they became specialized, that specialization, that degree of specialization, that specificity in evolution, natural selection, and complexity, that niche differentiation, that fine scale of niche, that small step 
going back to the stair step analogy where steps on a staircase are a way you slowly ratchet your the energy of your body down a a flight of stairs from the second floor to the first floor the the longer and the more stable systems are the smaller those steps are on the staircase like really intact ancient ecological systems it's more of a ramp than it is a step because the steps are so small and they're so intricate because things are specialized to such a degree because of the stability over long periods of time that makes sense and so back to the beginning of this point is that the complexity the adaptability the stability of these systems are emergent and ascendant properties of life to the to the degree that they drive the very phenomena of life it, it becomes it becomes this autocatalytic system this autocatalytic process the system of, of self-perpetualness that that stability leads to complexity which leads to adaptability which leads to more complexity which leads to more adaptability the system just builds and builds on its own complexity to the point that you have orchids in florida or in the tropics that are growing epiphytically have these very specific lifestyles or you have fungi they have a fly crawl to the top of a twig and grab onto the twig do the final consumption of the fly and spores are generated out of the uh, the fly itself and they disperse highly intricate ecological systems there are parasitic wasps that capture caterpillars they sting caterpillars paralyze them lay eggs in them and then stick them in a hole somewhere and then that that egg is inside the the caterpillar and within a i don't know even how long it takes eventually that egg hatches and the the young wasp larva eats the caterpillar uh, alive while it's while it's more or less comatose there are also smaller wasps that watch the main parasitoid wasp capture a caterpillar and then they follow it and watches where it hides its caterpillar in the hole in the ground and then when it leaves it goes in there and it lays its eggs in the same caterpillar and they hatch earlier and they eat everything they eat the other eggs and they eat everything inside that's pretty intricate would you believe that there's a third parasitoid wasp that watches the wasp that watch the other wasp that's been documented as four deep four wasps deep so that's the level of complexity and intensity in complex ecological systems those wasps only occur in old growth intact complex and stable ecological scenarios you can plant native plants in your landscaping all day long and that's never going to happen you need large-scale intact complex systems for that level of in intensity and that level of intricacy within a system and in this way the the living system the living ecosystem grows and builds upon itself it's building complexity and building order and building structure in a universe remember the second law of thermodynamics anytime energy is used it's losing its potential to do any more disorders generated in the process nature kind of defies that or at least pauses that energy slows it down and almost to a crawl and one of the things i've done this gets a little erudite but i think it's still scientifically legitimate picture a high quality 100 acres high quality intact functioning prairie let's put it west of chicago high quality prairie surrounded by agriculture or recently abandoned fields that are early successional weedy and you have this ancient complex ecological system 100 acres prairie right in the middle of it that prairie is using energy much more efficiently than the surrounding landscape and the use of energy the rate of energy affects entropy and entropy is what drives the perception at least of time as far as we can tell in the realm of physics so in essence one could deduce that that prairie that remnant that old growth slow moving efficient system that complex ecological dynamic is a time bubble it's a, it's it's experiencing and using time slower more slowly than the surrounding landscape which is full of quick living 
really inefficient, really simple life forms in the surrounding area. You've created this time variable. And if you disturb, if you pop that time bubble that is the prairie, if you a little bit of disturbance, a little bit of damage, and it's it'll just swamp right in. The, the, time, the time bubble pops and it's all over. It's the increasing danger of having small remnant natural communities. I mean, you, when you have a 10-acre nature preserve that's full of very specific species, it's really in danger of collapsing because it is literally a bubble of, of different energy use and time movement than the surrounding landscape. Historically, it would have been embedded in a larger context that was where it was not so anachronistic with itself. But we've degraded the landscape to the point that real nature, the reality of functioning ecosystems is anachronistic in the landscape. It's, 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 it is the exception when it was the rule. And the rule are more of these novel landscapes and communities that, that never really existed invasive and or exotic species that are that have no evolutionary histories they don't have that complexity there's open niches and yada 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 that in time over evolutionary time they would would and could complexify the question is what do we lose in the interim conservation really is about mitigating the ecological damage until we can figure out how systems work and how systems heal and that's one of the driving uh, focuses of nature site as an organization is is understanding that process understanding these processes and understanding that anachronism understanding what its consequences are and trying to understand and assist with that transition as best we possibly can and so more or less last point life forms evolve according to the use of energy that drives them in this way each life form is a physical and an emergent manifestation of how energy is moving through a system and often between two other systems it's you know whatever it's what it's feeding upon and what feeds upon it it is a transitional state of energy that, that is moving through the system like thoughts is a manifestation of your brain and stimuli consciousness is that thought that is manifesting somewhere between your brain and the external stimuli consciousness is the very point of the process in essence living organisms are very analogous to the consciousness within thought the consciousness of your thoughts it's the active awareness of the selfness of the energy of your existence my existence the existence of living things billions of years in the making all using energy every organism must have this awareness at some scale that, that's where the the consciousness of existence comes in in order for energy to cascade in order for an organism to learn and to interact and to respond to an environment there has to be a moment of thought there has to be a there has to be an awareness in response to a stimuli that magical electrical state that now that nowness is awareness the conscious thoughts in your head that are constantly moving they're following that energy wave the thoughts in your brain as you move through time are basically following the energy that your body is using as it's rippling through ecological systems your thoughts your awareness your consciousness are riding the waves of energy from the Big Bang, riding the crest of a wave that is 13.7 billion years in the making. So is every other living organism out there. This must be so. There isn't a, there's an awareness that's not a measurable, it's not a mechanical awareness, just as we can't define consciousness. We can't measure consciousness. We know we as individuals experience it. You can experience consciousness, your own, but you can't experience the consciousness of, of other living organisms. But it pretty much has to be that it exists because that's just how life happens. That's how living organisms function. And so 
that brings all this energy to the present. That's where we are at the present. That's the present moment of the Big Bang energy flowing, and that's the process through which it has been flowing as I, as I sit here now speaking to you. I'm aware of my heartbeat and aware of my own breathing, aware of my thoughts. And then they're gone and they're replaced by different breathing, different heartbeats, and different thoughts. And this wave is rippling through every living organism alive at whatever second in time we snap our fingers. Of course, it's gone. It's constantly moving, right? Um, that's, that's the active flow of energy in our living systems. And you could look at a small scale or you could look at the entire globe, but it's all happening and it's all moving. And it's moving towards something. To be conscious of that implies that we need to be conscious of the consequences. Um, I, I read a quote once that, that science is simply a matter of understanding the consequences of our actions. When we become conscious of this process, when you become conscious of we're all moving towards something, there's going to be a future. When we're conscious that we can control at least some element of that future in our own lives, and we all, we all do this, we all have plans tomorrow, right? You're assuming tomorrow is going to come. But what about 100 years from now? What about the violets in the yard and the oak trees and whatever whatever organisms are in your regional area what are their plans their plans are driven by the same things that yours are driven by an, an evolutionary urge there's a genetic predisposition and a behavioral predisposition to do something when we live in a landscape where their future has been eliminated we don't live in a very moral landscape where we're denying the existence we're denying the rights of those organisms to have a future by extracting the resources for our own personal use. And that's essentially why we've degraded landscapes, right? We've decided we want to use this energy for human things and non-human things, well, they don't exist. They don't matter. They're, they're not our problem. And that's fine. That's kind of the, the modus operandi of the human species as we, as we spread out of Africa and across the globe. And now, we, now we've covered the globe is we just kind of degrade and move on, degrade and move on. And then sometimes we circle back. If we're doing it slow enough, we have time to circle back and sort of degrade and move on and degrade and move on and circle back. And the system is replenished and adapted. We've gotten so good at it we move too fast. We move faster than systems can adjust. We have, we have exceeded the time variable of which living systems function on this, on this planet, and we've run out of space. There's now somebody living everywhere, actively extracting those local resources. We're not extracting and then going somewhere else. We're extracting and then living on that landscape and extracting is whatever we whatever's left so we're now we're having to find more and elaborate and efficient ways to extract as much energy and resources away from those systems which degrade systems even more so we're at a point in human history where i think this consciousness is manifesting because it has to because we're we're coming against a selection variable a variation of in selection that we'd never really had to deal with at this magnitude. And, you know, people have been saying this for decades, if not over a century of environmental uh, environmental talk. It's only going to get worse, right? The talk's only going to get more serious. But I don't think people are conscious. We don't talk about the consciousness element of it. And that's kind of one of the, the big kicks that I'm on and trying to make people conscious of is if we can become conscious of this dynamic, if we can become aware of this dynamic and can communicate that this is what's happening to more and more people, then we can start to be collectively aware of these dynamics. And that's when we can start altering our consciousness. In the meantime, we've got to save preserves. We've got to save remnants. We've got to protect actual nature we have to know what that nature is. We have to know how the pieces go back together. We have to understand how complex and how intricate and how amazing living systems are. And we're losing that really quickly.
I've been a, a botanist and ecologist for a little over 20 years. Places that I went to 15, 20 years ago that were amazing, buzzing, alive ecological systems, a lot of them are now deteriorated, simplified, weedy examples of their former selves. Largely because we don't understand how they work and we, we manage them in incorrect in ways. But when they're gone, it's as if that reality never existed. We could never recreate it. Most people, a lot of people that I work with, think that an old field or the, a degraded woodlot with trees that are 70, 80 years old, a quarter of their potential age, those are that that's nature and those are living systems. And they are, but they're destabilized. They're, they're, a, they're a lesser form of consciousness. They're less real. They, they, aren't, they aren't living their truer selves because they are now disconnected. They're living in a world that they're not quite evolved to live in. We need to find ways to recapture that consciousness, our own consciousness. And that's what I mean by the, the process of ascesis. In the summer, hopefully if the, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic loosens up and we're, we're able to travel a little more freely, the summer the goal is to do several workshops, at least in the Midwest, uh, St. Louis, Kansas City, Chicago, maybe Indianapolis, um, to do some workshops and get people together for a couple of days and spend time in the woods and talk about this very system and try to raise awareness that that this is a a dynamic that we're we're missing. This is this is potentially the piece that we're missing in terms of what conservation needs. It needs a mechanism. It needs a holistic approach. We need this ascesis concept, and ascesis is. The process by which a species adapts and becomes a part of its system. Humans need to fit into the natural processes. We've we've gotten so far out of bounds, and we're degrading systems so much. We're degrading the reality of the world around us, and it's why we have trouble relating to how reality actually works because we've severed ourselves from the actual process. So, it all comes down to the Pascalian wager. Pascal wagered that. Whether there is a God or not, if I behave as though there is, it's a better life, a better moral life than if I do not. And, you know, I'm not not a religious person, but it's essentially that wager. We're at the point where if we imagine what our lives would be like if we lived more conscious, if we extended the olive branch of consciousness to all living organisms and then the morality that hinges upon that, we extend it then we wouldn't have CAFOs we wouldn't have rampant resource extraction we'd start to ask ourselves how can we do better how can we how can we do more with less how can we find better ways to use energy without these massive impacts and I think this 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 uh, this period of self-isolation this period of introspection this period of of social distancing is a good time to reflect on that and it's you know it's been in the media and stuff that there are there the when we slow down the economy the ecosystem can catch up a little bit we need to find ways to strike that balance scientifically with data we can measure these things we can measure the ecological function of an old forest and we can measure how it how it responds with things like floristic quality assessment and other things so anyway if you want to read more about that or want to know more about that go to the vasculum.blogspot.com that's the nature site blog where i've put up though the last three or four entries are all things that more or less radiate from this topic that's the vasculum.blogspot.com and you can follow nature site on facebook we'll be posting things probably a lot over the next several weeks trying to Trying to not let this moment pass that we can all sort of collectively reflect on ourselves and our lives and and try to try to find a way for this ascesis, this this process of coming home might make us all better people and make the world a better place in the process. Okay, so that's it. Hopefully everybody's still awake and if you made it to the end of this, well my god, you have some serious endurance. But Hopefully it was interesting and educational. 
And so until next time, thanks for listening.